0: All right, we are starting in on a series on spiritual warfare. We've been working through the book of Ephesians. Actually, look, it's like three years we've been going through this book. Almost done. (laughs) Uh, But we're on the section in Ephesians on uh, spiritual warfare. And so uh, we're going to begin with a uh, a video uh, testimony.
1: Sandy Boyd remembers when she played in a field of flowers as a child.
2: I felt like it was a safe haven for me. I felt loved. I was free to run and sing and dance and move freely without it being directed by someone else. But that
1: field was only in her mind. Sandy was 12 years old when her father began using her in satanic rituals.
2: My dad um, became involved in Satanism and gave his life to Satan and used me in my life as a um, sexual sacrifice to Satan. Every time that he would come to me and want this to happen, I would just leave and I would go into this field of flowers where I felt safe. It was my place of refuge.
1: Sandy was born into a family that practiced witchcraft for many generations. She says they even had a guardian spirit to protect them they called Mrs. Coral.
2: We would ask her questions. We would hear noises if it was yes and different noises if it was no, and we would conjure her up in seances.
1: One thing their guardian spirit didn't protect Sandy from was her father.
2: During the night, he would come in my room and he would um, start chanting. And when he started chanting, I felt demonic beings around me.
1: He also forced Sandy to use cocaine to control her. Finally, at 17, she ran away. By now, she was addicted to drugs. She lived on the streets and turned to prostitution to survive.
2: It was a choice that I made, but it really, at that time, it was the only choice that I had.
1: That choice was confirmed when Sandy went to her guardian spirit for guidance.
2: She was the reason I could keep getting up in the morning and thinking that I can go and prostitute myself and make enough to take care of myself.
1: During the next 10 years, Sandy married and divorced twice and had a daughter from her second marriage. Over that time, the drugs, demon spirits, and her father still ruled her life.
2: When I couldn't find my drugs from other people and other places, then I would always revert back to him.
1: Sandy gained custody of her daughter. During this time, Sandy's father wanted her to participate in another sexual ritual in exchange for his financial support. This time, she cut ties with her father for good.
2: I was very repulsed by it. I was repulsed by men in general at that point. I hated them, I despised them, and I refused to do it. I didn't go back. Sandy
1: and her daughter moved in with Sandy's sister. She thought it would be a place of refuge. Then one night, she says a demonic figure appeared at the foot of her bed.
2: He said, it's time now to pass what your grandmother has taught you onto your child. And at that moment, I was terrified.
1: Sandy was ready to do whatever it took to protect her daughter.
2: I thought my daughter would be better off if I would just die, and she would end up in foster care with another family, a a wholesome, healthy environment, possibly.
1: So the next morning, Sandy dropped her daughter off at daycare and then drove to a remote area. Her plan was to commit suicide.
2: I laid the seat of my car back and both my arms fell to the side and I felt in between my console and my seat a New Testament Gideon Bible and this is the very one that I found in my car that day I don't know where it came from I just turned to the back and there was a sinners prayer in the back and I could relate to that and I thought God I'm a sinner I have done so many bad things I give my life to you take control And as I said that sinner's prayer, I felt such a peace that came over me that I'd never felt in my life. Through the sinner's prayer, I recognized that Jesus was real. He was real, and my eyes were open. The blinders were taken off, and I was able to see Jesus for who he was in my life. Sandy
1: says in that moment, her desire for drugs vanished, and for once in her life, She had hope, but the battle wasn't over. Later that night, she heard her daughter screaming.
2: She was standing up in her crib, swinging her arms back and forth, and her toys were flying around the room. The ceiling fan was spinning so fast, I thought it would literally drop from the ceiling. And I ran over to her and she kept saying, they're biting me, mommy, they're biting me. And I saw bite marks on her arms. And I picked her up and we huddled in the corner of that apartment that night and as I prayed to Jesus I felt his loving arms just come and wrap himself around me and give me shelter from everything that was going on
1: she says the demonic oppression would come back but through prayer counseling and trusting God's Word she was able to hold strong to her faith she married Scott who she says helped her on her journey to complete freedom in Christ
3: I began walking her through shutting every door that was open and getting everything under the blood of Jesus and just breaking anything off her life.
1: Sandy says God healed the wounds of abuse and helped her forgive her father who has since passed away.
2: The love and compassion comes from the Lord to love the person that hurt me that caused so much abuse in my life.
1: Today Sandy and her husband Scott pastor a church in Garland, Texas where they help lead others to total freedom in Christ. Brianna is their worship leader.
0: When I think about what
2: God did for my mom, she, uh, it's amazing. Because honestly, my life, I don't know where I would be like today. And it makes me want to cry. Walking in freedom now has been the most amazing experience in my life. I am free. I am free to help others that are in bondage. I am free to proclaim Jesus is the Savior, and he is the only one that can set us free.
0: And we'll be seeing uh, more uh, testimonies throughout this series. Uh, So yeah, we will be looking at Ephesians chapter 6, uh, 10 through 12, and uh, let's just pray. Uh, God, we pray. Uh, for protection, God, as we uh, uh, go through this series. pray, God, that you give us insight. We pray, God, that you would give us uh, a reminder of our authority in Jesus, God, over the realm of uh, evil and uh, evil spirits. Uh, so, God, may your spirit lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 There is a whole uh, world of spiritual beings uh, that we don't see with our physical eyes. Uh, there's a story in the Old Testament of, um, of uh, kind of a picture of this. In 2 Kings 6, it says, When the servant of the man of God, that's uh, Elisha's servant, he was a prophet, got up and went out early the next morning, an army with horses and chariots has surrounded the city. There was this army from the king of Aram who was wanting to come and capture Elisha. This gigantic physical army uh, around uh, oh, my Lord, uh, oh, no, what shall we do, uh, the servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. I mean, which is kind of weird because just the two of them, this huge army uh, ready to attack them. What do you mean there's more, more on our side? And then Elisha praised this prayer. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Uh, he was able to see for a moment into the spiritual world. And there was this vast army of spiritual beings uh, that was there on Elisha's side. And if you read the story, it's kind of interesting what happens, how these spiritual beings came and uh, to their aid. There is a ginormous spiritual world out there, Uh That we uh, cannot see. And this is what our text talks about in Ephesians chapter 6. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. And it says this, put on the full armor of God. So that you can take your stand against the devil's scheme. And so we see three things here. Be strong. You better put on some armor. And then you are going to take your stand. Why? Why? Because there is a world full of evil spiritual beings that don't have your best interest in mind. So what it goes on to say, to take your stand against the devil's scheme, so it's one spiritual being, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, uh, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. That there are spiritual forces of evil spirits uh, who want to create a lot of mess in your lives, and in this world. Now, before we get too far into this, we need to talk a little bit, and we've talked about this before. Uh, Yeah, that was me when I was a kid, yeah. (laughs) Uh, We need to talk a little bit about recognizing our Western glasses, because when we begin to talk about the spiritual world, and maybe even listening to that testimony of uh, physical manifestations of demons or those kinds of things. Sometimes kind of kind of weirds people in the West out. Uh, we in the West tend to put a lot of weight on the natural realm and very little weight on the supernatural realm. Uh, just because we're born in the West is kind of our, our nature. We like to judge things by things we can taste, touch, and feel and examine physically, things that are matter. Things of the supernatural... Uh, we don't give a lot of credit to. Uh, We tend to dismiss, we try to explain the way uh, in some sort of natural way. It's kind of the nature of just growing up in the Western world. But the reality is, for a lot of history, and still a lot of cultures today, they will actually invert this. There are a lot of cultures uh, throughout history and today that will actually put the supernatural realm far ahead of the natural realm. And so for we, when we see an event... Uh, say someone says, "You know, I've been healed." We will tend to say, "Look for a natural explanation to that." Where places in the world, they would first of all look to a supernatural explanation. It must have been the spirits, or it must have been something supernatural. We we see this in the Bible a couple times. Uh, for instance, in Acts chapter 28, this is after Paul and a group of people are shipwrecked. It says, "Once safely on shore, we found out that the island was called Malta." The islanders showed us unusual kindness. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood, and as he put it on fire, a viper, dri- driven out by the heat, fastened itself onto his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not al- allowed him to live. Notice there are. He sees a snake attack this guy. Their first explanation is spiritual. Us in the West, our first explanation would be, you're just bugging a snake. Yeah. It's, just, it's just nature. It's just, it's just, we would look for a natural answer. Yeah. These people look for a supernatural answer. And it goes on. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him... They changed their minds and said he was a god. Again, supernatural explanation. We in the West would say, well, it's probably just somebody's escaped pet snake that has no venom or you know, it was old or something. We would look for a natural explanation. We see this in uh, also in the book of Acts. Uh, this is when Peter, when an angel uh, miraculously led Peter out of this prison. Peter knocked on the, the, the outer entrance. This is where people were praying. And a servant named uh, Rhoda came and answered the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she saw she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. Peter's actually at the door. Their answer was, that's too crazy. It must be a supernatural answer. We would say, well, it's Peter. I mean, we're just in the West because we, we would look for a natural explanation. So, Western people look for natural, there are places to look for supernatural explanations. The Bible puts it this way, that both of these realms are very real. When things happen, sometimes it's from the natural realm, but often it's also from the supernatural realm. That we as followers of Jesus who trust God's word, we cannot be people who dismiss the supernatural realm we need to be open in any situation to perhaps it's a natural explanation, but perhaps it's a supernatural explanation. And we'll talk more next week on how the supernatural realm actually affects the natural realm, but we'll leave that to next week. But we need to make sure that as we go through the series that we're not just like, just uh, looking to natural answers because the Bible says both of these things are very, very real. Uh, Rich and... uh, Ken said uh, they wrote a book called Empowered Evangelicals. They said this According to most Western evangelicals, reality, with a capital R, means the reality we can see, touch, and smell. All of our questions and doubts tend to be resolved in favor of a naturalistic interpretation over a supernatural interpretation of life's events. Indeed, it takes a very conscious effort for Western evangelicals to remove the naturalistic lenses to see what people in other cultures or in the culture of of the Bible saw. And one of the ways these lenses are often removed for people in Western culture is they've actually had an experience of the supernatural. They've had experience of the demonic. They've had an alien encounter or they've had manifestations in their house or they've had some uh, religious encounter or something, some sort of experience which tends to shake Westerners out of this uh, naturalistic realm. And so... Uh, we're going to expose ourselves a lot in this series to the supernatural realm. And so today we're going to talk, uh, just kind of give an overview of supernatural beings. And, uh, and if you ever wondered, like, what is some of the weirdest stuff in the Bible? Today you're going to hear some of that, okay? Uh, some of the weirdest stuff in the in the scriptures. The text says this, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul says here, and this is a shake to our Western reality, he says our struggle is not primarily about flesh and blood, but it's about these rulers of evil, spiritual forces around us that are creating trouble in our lives. And usually when we face difficulty, we often, again, look for a naturalistic answer. We tend to put away the supernatural, but Paul says, be very careful about doing that. One of the tactics of the enemy is to get you to not think the enemy is real. Uh, They are very real. And you can be sure behind certain things, I mean, say someone is just kind of mean to you at work, it's possible that person is just mean, but it's also possible That there are demons behind the scene, evil forces pushing, tempting, forcing, marital conflicts. You can be sure that there are times there is demonic work behind, pushing, tempting, trying to destroy your marriage. Uh, Because John 10 says uh, the job of the evil one is to kill, steal, and destroy. Uh, We are in a war zone, the Bible says. Whether you like it or not, you are in a war and if you go back to, say, Second World War, if you are in Europe, whether you liked it or not, you were in a war. You were in a war zone. Whether you wanted to run, hide, you were you in a war zone. We are in a war zone. Uh, there are spiritual forces that are wanting to destroy you, and this is what it says in First Peter, be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Now, this is our part. We've got to actually actively fight back. And so if you're not actively fighting back, there's danger in that. The Bible says resist him, standing firm in the faith. Or Ephesians 6, take your stand against the devil's schemes. Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God. This is, again, our part. So that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground. Second Corinthians 2 talks about how Satan wants to outwit us. But it also says we shouldn't be unaware of his schemes. And part of this series is to help us be aware of, of how he interacts with this world. And again, John 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And sometimes to do that, as the Bible said, he will masquerade as an angel of light. Like you saw on that testimony, A she thought for a while that her spirit guide was a good spirit guide. But suddenly, these evil forces are wanting to kill to steal and destroy your life and to get you as far from God as possible. We are in a war zone. Now, I want to mention again, sometimes when we talk through this stuff, some people get a little freaked out and they're like, I don't know if we should be talking about this stuff because I don't know, there might be opening doors or this might be scary. That's exactly what the enemy wants you to think. Uh, We have authority, and we're going to talk about this probably in a few weeks, in Christ over evil. Uh, You do not need to be afraid, and it's a good thing for us to learn about these kinds of things because it only helps us defeat the enemy. The more we're aware of how he works, the more power we have in terms of fighting him. Okay, so today we're going to do an overview of spiritual beings. Uh, Just so you know kind of what's out there in terms of the spiritual world. Again, our text says, take your stand against the devil's schemes. So there we have one spiritual being, the devil. Satan, the accuser, we know him throughout the scripture. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces, plural, of evil in the heavenly realms. And these words, rulers, authorities, against these powers, is in essence describing different levels of authority of evil spiritual beings. There's not just Satan, and there's not just demons. It's actually more complicated than that. So let's, uh, let's begin. Let's begin with God. Uh, and what we're going to look at today, uh, a lot of this stuff may be new for you. Unless you're kind of up on a lot of the modern scholarship in terms of the supernatural, or you're really up on ancient uh, Jewish traditions and writings, some of this will be new for you. God has always existed. Genesis 21. The Lord, the eternal God, Psalm 90 says He is everlasting to everlasting. God has always existed. Uh, He's outside of time, but there's a moment God created time and in that time began to create. And the very first thing he creates is other spiritual beings. We see this in, in, in Job, that before God created the earth, he created other spiritual beings. In Job 38, this is God speaking to Job. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me, if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched out the line upon it? On what were its, uh, its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning star sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So when God was creating the world, there's all these sons of God who are going, Woohoo, that's amazing. This is wonderful. Now, who are these sons of God? Uh, the Hebrew word, sons of God, is the word uh, beni Elohim, which really just means a divine being with high authority. So uh, God creates these sons of God, these divine beings with high authority, and they're called sons of God because they're part of God's spiritual family. Now, we also are called sons or daughters of the king or sons of daughters of God. We are kind of like his physical family. And one day, when this universe is wrapped up, we will be united with God's spiritual family, these sons of God, and we're going to be one super happy family uh, with the the sons of God. And these are different from angels. Uh, When you think of angel, don't think so much of a being. Think more of a a duty or a task. This is often how the word is used. Sometimes it means a, a spiritual being. But the word really just means the task of serving and delivering messages. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 says, are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? So immediately we see God. Uh, he's got this group of high-level uh, sons of God, these divine beings. And then we got angels. we got these other beings called angels. And then we got archangels and other spiritual beings in between. In Genesis chapter 1, uh, many people think this is pointing to God again at the book of Job, but all the sons of God are shouting for joy as God is creating the earth. That it says in Genesis 1:26, then God said, let us. Now, who is he talking to? Now, some theologians will say that he was talking amongst the Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, most theologians will say that he is talking not to, the, the, it's not the triune God, but to this group of divine beings, the sons of God. Let us, sons of God, <laughs> make mankind in our image and in our likeness in the sense that these divine beings, these sons of God, uh, these holy ones as they're sometimes called, they have in essence free will as we do as part of being in the image of God. And this is important because we will see that some of these sons of God uh, end up rebelling. In Psalm 82, this is a a kind of a pivotal text, Uh, there's been a lot of scholarly work Recently, around this text, it says this Psalm 82 God, Hebrew Elohim, stands in the divine assembly. He administers judgment in the midst of the gods. Again, Elohim. And the Hebrew word Elohim just means a spiritual being. That's all it means, a spiritual being. Our English translation is translated God or gods, but it can be singular or plural. And so here we have a singular, this is God, Elohim stands in this divine assembly, or some uh, theologians call it the divine council, and ministers judgment in the midst of these other Elohim, these other spiritual beings. And so there's God who administers justice in this divine council of other spiritual beings. Uh, Dr. Michael Heiser, who is a well-respected biblical scholar, says this on this psalm. In Psalm 82, 1, the first Elohim This is God Almighty, must be singular. Since the Hebrew grammar has the word as the subject of a singular verbal form stands. The second Elohim must be plural, since the preposition in front of it, in the midst of, requires more than one. You can't be in the midst of one. The preposition calls for a group, as does the earlier noun, assembly. The meaning of this verse is inescapable. The singular Elohim, that's the God of Israel, provides over an assembly of Elohim. A quick read of Psalm 82 informs us that God has called the council meeting together to judge the Elohim for corrupt rule of the nations, and we'll we'll talk about that in a moment. But here we see God has, if you will, this kind of divine council, this assembly of the sons of God, and God works through this divine council. You might wonder, well, why does God work through these other divine beings when He could just do everything Himself? Same reason God works through us <laughs> when He's going to do everything Himself. God is relational by definition. Uh, he loves to work through His spiritual family, these, these sons of God, and He loves to work through us as well. And we see this idea of this divine council assembly at work in various places in the Bible. For instance, Job 1, it says, the sons of God, this is the other, el- other gods or Elohim, came to present themselves before the Lord. We see Psalm 89, the heavens praise your wonders, Lord, your faithfulness too, in the assembly of the Holy Ones. Another name for the sons of God. Uh, for who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? For who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the council of the Holy Ones, God is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround them. We see this council at work in uh, passages like 1 Kings. And by the way, this first message... It's just going to be just theology, okay? I like the marriage series we did. We started theology, and we're going to work more towards application. So uh, next week or in the following weeks, we'll get way more applicable. But here we see the divine counsel at work. God, with His divine assembly, this divine council of spiritual beings, there's a prophet speaking, "'Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on His throne.'" with all the multitudes of heaven standing around him on his right and on his left. He, he has this, this spiritual council gathered together. And the Lord says to this council, who will entice Ahab in attacking Ramoth Gilead and going to his death? So God has a task to do. God loves to work through people. He loves to work through his heavenly being. So he asks, hey, we got this job to do. What should we do about it? One suggested, this would be one of the Elohim, or one of these spiritual beings. One suggested this, the other that. Finally, a spirit came forward, stood before the Lord, and said, I will entice him. By what means, the Lord asked. I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouths of all his prophets, he said. You will succeed in enticing him, said the Lord. Go and do it. And so God just didn't make all these decisions. He's getting input from this divine counsel, and one suggests this, and, and if ever God's gonna do whatever he's going to do, if they suggest something wrong, but he's like, hey, that's a good plan. Go and do it. And so the divine counsel at work. We see in Daniel 4, again, a picture of this. Uh, this is Nebuchadnezzar's judgment when uh, God humbles him for years until he learns about the power of God. But it says his judgment is by the... Uh, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers. And the watchers is the same as the sons of God, this this divine council members. The decree is by the watchers. This this council made this decision, uh, the decision by the word of the holy ones. uh, To the end that the living may know uh, that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it, the lowliest of men. And so we see pictures throughout the scriptures of God working through this uh, divine counsel uh, to carry out his, his will. Now, everything didn't remain good. He's got this divine counsel of awesome spiritual beings that he works through. Uh, but Job 15 says the heavens are not pure in his sight, there was rebellion. And this is where we begin to get some of these evil spiritual beings. Uh, the heavens are not pure in his sight. Now, when you ask probably most of us, he said, like, where does all the evil in the world come from? Uh, where's all the suffering and pain? Why is life just so messy? Where does this all come from? Uh, most Christians would say, well, Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man. When man fell, it brought sin into the world, and all this corruption happened because of Genesis chapter 3. And that's partly the truth. Do you know if you asked a Jew in the time of Jesus, why is this world so messy? Why is there so much evil and suffering? They would give you three answers. They would point to three rebellions found in the Bible for the reason that we have so much suffering and pain in this world. We as sort of modern day Christians are very familiar with one, but I'm going to talk about two others, which might be uh, a little bit more unfamiliar with you. So the first one, is the rebellion of Satan and the fall of man. Uh, some scholars and theologians look to Isaiah. Uh, some have a different interpretation of this, but many think that this is pointing to the fall of Satan. The Satan was a member of God's divine counsel, uh, of the, his holy ones, these, these watchers, these people uh, in divine counsel. But then, because he has free will just like us, he chose to rebel. In Isaiah 14... It says how you have fallen from heaven morning star son of the dawn you've been cast down to the earth you who once laid low the nations you said in your heart i will ascend to the heavens i will raise my throne above the stars of god i will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of mount zaphon i will ascend above the tops of the clouds i will make myself like the most high But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. And so somewhere along the line, Satan chooses to rebel. You might say, why in the world would he do that? And sometimes we think that's a really complicated question, why spiritual beings would rebel against God. But the answer is super simple, the same reason you and I do. Uh, We do it all the time. We know that God is God. We know he's in charge of the universe. We know he's king. We know in the end we can't thwart his plans, but what do we do? I think I know better. That's, what, that's why Satan does it. But he comes down, and he and we know the story where he, he tempts Adam and Eve to rebel against God, and this is where sin enters the world. Evil enters the world through this rebellion of Satan and uh, the fall of man. Now, there's a second rebellion, which can have huge consequences, uh, especially in Jewish theology, of why the world is so messy. And that is the rebellion of Genesis chapter 6. In Genesis chapter 6, it says this. Uh, when human beings began to increase in number on the earth, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God, no you remember those guys? The members of God's divine council, these beings he created before he created the earth, these high-level spiritual beings saw that the daughters of humans were beautiful and they married any of them they chose. The, the, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and, after, and also afterward when the sons of God went to the daughters of humans and had children by them. And so the Nephilim uh, were created through these sons of God who rebelled and came down and married human women And the result were these offspring called the Nephilim. Now, there are other uh, interpretations of this this text. Uh, Some people think that the Nephilim were just like strong heroes of old, uh, like just just men in the natural. But those kind of naturalistic interpretations have a lot of issues when it comes to the context of the flood and 2 Peter and Jude. Sort of the, the traditional supernatural understanding of this text is, again, these divine beings came down took on human bodies, which shouldn't be abnormal for us because all throughout the Bible we see angels in human form. Angels that eat, angels that touch, angels that do things. And so the traditional supernatural understanding is these sons of God took on human bodies, uh, slept with women, and created these kind of hybrid offspring called the Nephilim. And it says, they were heroes of old, men of renown. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that very, every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil at time. And because of the Nephilim, it's one of the reasons God brought the flood was to wipe, uh, wipe out this race of Nephilim. We uh, see stories of the Nephilim in a lot of other literature, a lot of Jewish texts, uh, some Babylonian texts. Uh, for instance, in F- First Enoch 6-7, this is not a biblical text, by the way. Uh, but just because a text is not found in the Bible doesn't mean there's decent history in it. There's some weird stuff in uh, the book of Enoch. Yeah, Darren. Uh, it's still canon in the oh, the book of Enoch is? Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Yeah, thanks, Darren. It is, yeah. So here is the uh, book of First Enoch talking about uh, the Nephilim. And it came to pass when the sons of men had increased that in those days... There were born to them fair and beautiful daughters. And the watchers, remember this is the sons of God, the sons of heaven saw them and desired them. And they said to one another, come, let us choose for ourselves wives from the children of men and let us beget for ourselves children. And Semyaza, who was their leader, said to them, I fear that you may not wish this deed to be done and that I alone will pay for this great sin. They, they knew that they were going against God. And they all answered him and said, Let us all swear an oath and bind one another with curses. So not to alter this plan, but to carry out this plan effectively. Then they all swore together and all bound one another with curses to it. And they were in all 200. And they came down on Artis, which is the summit of Mount Hermon, which is the highest mountain in the area of Israel. And they took wives for themselves. And everyone chose for himself each one. And they began to go into them and were promiscuous with them, and they taught them charms and spells, and they showed them the cutting of roots and trees, and they became pregnant and bore large giants. That's what the word nephilim actually means. It just means uh, giants. And we're not talking about huge creatures. Biblical texts speak seven to nine feet tall, which isn't tall in our day, but tall in those days. And their height was 3,000 cubits, which most people think was a textual error or an exaggeration. (laughs) These devoured all the toil of men until men were unable to sustain them. And the giants turned against them in order to devour men. And they began to sin against birds and against animals and against reptiles, against fish. And they devoured one another's flesh and drank the blood from it. The earth complained about the lawless one and the world was changed. And there was great, um, uh, what's that word? Impiety. There we go thank you, and much fornication, <laughs> and they went astray, and all their ways became corrupt, and, and we see that this is the reason for the flood. I mean, we're like, what would cause God to want to wipe out this planet? This. Uh, the, these creatures, uh, and they began to affect mankind, and so in Jewish tradition, part of the problem of this world is the Nephilim, and we see in Jude chapter 1, it speaks about this, Uh, the angels who did not keep their position, these are these angels, these sons of God who came down and intermarried with women, it says, the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these have been kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. And 2 Peter, if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them in chains of darkness to be held for judgment. The only interpretation that makes sense of this is Genesis 6. And those who have other interpreters of Genesis 6 have a really hard time with uh, these texts. And so these angels who sinned, uh, God judged them, and they have been sent to hell, and they are awaiting judgment there. Now the reason I bring this up is because of the question of where do demons come from? And scholars rescue over the question, of where do demons come from? And there are often kind of uh, three answers. One is we have no idea. <laughs> the second is and is that uh, demons are fallen angels. And this is kind of the, the typical answer. Uh, sometimes people look to Revelation 12, where it says an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Talking about the Satan figure. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. And so they would say, this is Satan sweeping a third of the angels down, and these angels become demons. The problem with that, there's a number of problems with it, as scholars will point out. Number one, the context of Genesis 12 is the birth of Jesus, or uh, Revelation 12. Not some time way back in history. Clearly the context is the birth of Jesus. The second issue is, this is almost a direct quotation of Daniel 8.10 idea of flinging down stars, and the interpretation of it is found in Daniel 8.24, which is the perse- persecution of believers. That's the issue with it. Other scholars will say uh, suggest that, that demons actually come from the disembodied spirits of the Nephilim. is why we talk about this. That the angels who sinned were sent to hell, they're bound for judgment. When, when a Nephilim, this is the offspring, this human spirit kind of hybrid being was killed that these disembodied spirits uh, become the demons that we know of today. And, uh, and uh, uh, we'll see Dr. Michael Heiser talk about this at the end a little bit more. Now, what's also weird about this text is Genesis 6-3. It says, the, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, meaning after the flood. We see them show up in Numbers 13... It says they brought the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out saying the land through which we have gone to spy it out uh, we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people that we saw in it are of great height and we w- and and he says this and there we saw the nephilim the sons of anak who came from the nephilim and we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers so we Uh, seem to. This is one of the reasons why a lot of people freaked out about going into the land of Canaan, because the Nephilim were there, and we know about those guys. (laughs) They're big and scary. But they show up after the flood, as it says in Genesis chapter 6. And this is why some scholars think the reason for God saying, you need to conquer the land, because again, the Nephilim had begin to affect that area, just as in Genesis 6, God sent the flood in the land of Canaan because they began to spread. God sent in the Israelites to clear the land of the Nephilim. Now, rebellion number three. Uh, this is the third rebellion that in Jewish history they would point to for the cause of evil, suffering, pain in this world. There's the fall of Satan, the fall of man, there are the Perhaps the disembodied spirit of the Nephilim, which are demons, if they're not fallen angels, uh, we can't be for sure on that. In Genesis, when we won't read, this is the Tower of Babel. I think we all know the story, uh, maybe from word we of kids, where all the, the people of the world are gathered in one place and they begin to build a tower to the heavens, and this becomes a religion to reach uh, the gods of the sky. God comes down, confuses the languages and, and separates mankind over the Earth. Now what's interesting is, in Deuteronomy, speaking about the Tower of Babel, it says this. He divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the people according to the numbers of the sons of God. And Dr. Michael Heiser, uh, commenting on this, says this. The rest of the nations were placed under the authority of members of Yahweh's divine council. The other nations were assigned to lesser Elohim, spiritual beings, as a judgment from the Most High Yahweh. And so what some scholars think is after the Babel, they were spread. That this is the time when people were rebelling against him. God handed over the other nations to other members of his divine council. God himself says, I'm going to choose a new nation for myself. And he begins to work through the nation of Israel. And he begins to work through the nation of Israel. These other divine beings, some of them who are over other nations, become corrupt. And so we get the the gods of the Old Testament and Yahweh versus the gods and that kind of idea. So back to Psalm 82. God, Elohim, stands in the divine assembly. He administers judgment in the midst of the gods. And so what many people think are these gods as they were handed out to other nations that some of them began to rebel. And is why we have... uh, uh, false gods or other spirits over various nations. And, and in Daniel 10, perhaps we meet one. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. And so uh, these spirit beings that seem to be over nations, the, the prince of Persia, and Michael the archangel has to come and battle him before he can help Daniel. And it takes 10 days because, again, there's this vast spiritual, a lot of weird stuff, hey, eh, uh, going on. In the in the world. This is one of the reasons why Jesus dying on the cross. And it says in the Bible that one of the reasons he came was to defeat the work of Satan. And then he gives a great commission that we are to go to Jerusalem to Samaria to all the ends of the earth. Because God is now Tower of Babel. The nations were handed out to other Elohim. They became corrupt, and now through Jesus, he is reclaiming territory. And we preach the gospel reclaiming territory from uh, the enemy. And so back to Ephesians chapter 6. And so finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's scheme. He's talking about Satan. But our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities... Against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. In other words, again, the spiritual world is much more complicated than just angels and demons. And uh, let me just back up here. If this has intrigued you, or like, where is Jesse getting this stuff? That's the weirdest stuff I've ever heard. Uh, I highly recommend this this book. Uh, Doctor Michael Heiser is the scholar over Logos Bible software used by pretty much most scholars and theologians. Brilliant scholar, done a lot of work in this area, and uh, and you can pick up this book called The Unseen Realm, and he talks in a lot more detail about all of the stuff that we just covered today. And I just want to close with about a five-minute clip Dr. Michael Heiser talking about some of the things that we talked about. Then I'll come back, and and we'll be done.
3: Because of the way most Christians have been taught to think about demons, there's angels, there's demons, and then there's God, and that's pretty much the spiritual world. It creates uh, some confusion when you listen to some of the things I've been saying. You actually have a number of different groups of rebels. In the beginning, you had intelligent beings that he has created that live in the spiritual world, and then there's human beings, okay? Intelligent beings that live in the terrestrial world. That's fine until you know, we actually get you know some interaction. In Genesis 3, we have an initial rebellion, Okay, so we have the Satan figure, okay, that, that's one rebel. Genesis 6, we have another group. That group, again, by all either Mesopotamian or biblical or Jewish tradition, the, the guilty parties there wind up being sent into the abyss until the time of the end. It's an eschatological judgment. So that's a second group. A third group We get from the Babel incident, Deuteronomy 32, 8, and 9, when God divides up the nations and assigns them to other sons of God, and then they become corrupt. God abandons the nations at Babel, and he says, Israel's going to be my portion now. Jacob is going to be my inheritance. And so he calls Abraham, and he makes for himself a new nation, Israel. This is why in the rest of the Old Testament, it's Yahweh against the gods of the nations and Israel against those nations. The sons of God that are assigned to the other nations, this is the Old Testament explanation for why those nations got their own pantheons. We read in Psalm 82 that they have become corrupt. At some point in their history, they fail. They don't rule the nations the way God wants them ruled. Now, those guys aren't bound. They're not in prison. The Genesis 6 ones are. What about demons, just using that word demon? If you asked a first century Jew, hey, where do demons come from? They would have an immediate answer. If you ask a Christian now, they would say, I don't know because the Bible doesn't tell me. It's actually not the case. A Jew would say, well, sure, we know where demons come from. They're the disembodied spirits of dead Nephilim. So to summarize Genesis 6, 1 through 4, the most, if I can call it this, the most traditional supernaturalist reading of the passage is you have divine beings who can presume, create, and take on bodies and when they show up in flesh, as they often do in other passages flesh can do what flesh does, and they deliberately try to raise up their own populations either thinking that, well, they could do better because the world is just in a bad place in Genesis 6, uh, verse 5. Uh, Whatever their motivations might have been, ancient texts outside the Bible vary on this, but they're the ones who produce the Nephilim who are these giants. Now, in the biblical story, it's this act, it's this incident, that is the explanation for the giant clans that try to wipe out Israel later. In the book of Numbers 13.33,
0: Moses and Joshua, Well, let me just finish with this. We have authority over these evil beings. And so uh, don't leave from here like, oh, evil beings. Uh, we have authority in Christ. Uh, submit yourselves then to God. This is a conditional promise. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Philippians 1 says, Don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies, whether physical enemies or spiritual enemies, don't be intimidated by them. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed but that you are going to be safe.